frugality. And as he would go about a week, he would focus on one virtue, and any time he had a defect, something that, where he went off base with this virtue, he would make note of it so as to correct it and never do it again in the future. And uh, he would attempt and occasionally had what he deemed were clean sheets, a week where he mastered a virtue. Now, the astonishing thing about this project is that Ben Franklin would carry this notebook with him and many others and do this task of attempting to arrive at more perfection for the next 30 years of his life. 30 years he filled notebooks, marking down every time he went against a virtue. And as he came to the end of his life, at 78 years old, Franklin was quite impressed with the progress he had made, and yet there was one virtue that he never seemed fully to master, and it was humility. Franklin is going to say this, it's a great quote, there is perhaps not one of the natural passions so hard to subdue as pride. Disguise it, struggle with it, stifle it, mortify it as much as one pleases, it is still alive and will every now and then peep out and show itself. And then this is the great line from Franklin. Even if I could conceive that I had completely overcome pride, I should probably be proud of my humility. Isn't it true that pride is powerful? There's this sense with pride that it's always pulling us back. I think that's what Franklin shows us across the 30 years of his life that he was wrestling with humility. Every time you think you've started to enter into humility, there's this pull that's drawing you back into pride. Uh, that problem, struggle with pride, was not simply one for Benjamin Franklin. New, the New York Times two years ago reported on an article that they entitled, Calling Yourself Hashtag Humbled Doesn't Sound as Humble as It Used to Be. And what the Times was fascinated by was this rise of the humble brag. Now, you've probably stumbled across the humble brag if you've been on social media. For any who don't know about the humble brag, it is where you go to complain about something as you simultaneously brag about it. That's the Venn diagram. So complaints mixed with bragging count as humble brags. I'm going to give you a few examples, of course, because we need examples to understand and illustrate the humble brag. One might be Crushing this organic kale chia seed smoothie today, it's just so hard to stay in shape. Hashtag goals, right? That's it. It's a great example of a humble brag. You've got this complaint that's sort of masking this sense of I work out all the time, I'm, really, I'm in really good shape, look at my lifestyle, I'm doing so well. Another one might be, uh, feel free to raise your hand if you've ever posted these, by the way. Uh, <laughs> this one is, uh, ugh, this promotion is totally throwing off my tax return. Hashtag struggles, right? There's another good humble brag. I'll give you one more for city living. It's just so hard to have to clean both bathrooms in my duplex apartment, right? There's, there's another great complaint mixed with a brag. Uh, the Christians also have humble brags. Um, one Christian humble brag might be just so humbled and grateful to have this stunning lake view from my apartment. Hashtag blessed, right? God has given me this very hard but good thing that I have to bear. Another might be, uh, can't believe how much time I got to spend in God's word this morning on my roof deck. Hashtag blessed, right? It's a struggle to be so blessed by God. Uh, my favorite one, I haven't actually seen this, but I would love to see this if anyone wants to take me up on this. Uh, still can't believe Father Aaron calls me to get advice for his upcoming sermons. Hashtag humble, right? That would be a good, 
good humble brag. Now, the point of the humble brag is to note that there's this, there's this deceptive nature to pride that even in our culture today, we can't help but notice the increasing rise of an attempt at humility that is actually masking pride. So as we turn to our passage in James, what we have found, if you've been tracking this Marks of Faith series, is that James is writing to a church that is in the midst of all kinds of pressures that's been pushed upon them. So in James 1, uh, one serious struggle that's going on in the church is that there's this hypocrisy. Those who are saying they believe the word of God, they want to follow God's word, and yet they're acting a total different way. Another example of these pressures in James 2, you have the church, this community that's meant to follow and mirror Jesus, that seems to be really obsessed with the rich among them and are privileging them against the poor in their midst. Or last week in James 3, you found this intersection where the danger, the power of the tongue, is combined with this great need for wisdom. It's like the church has gotten confused. There are these teachers who seem to be teaching these wonderful things, and yet James is really concerned that it's not wisdom from above. It's actually just wisdom coming from within. And so here in James 4, James is really going to go after the key issue. This is where James wants to just light it up. What is really going on in this church that is allowing all of these competing pressures to be present? So go ahead and look with me at James 4, verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Here we find again this internal power pulling Christians followers of Jesus, away from God and back in towards themselves. The results of this are going to be chaotic. There's uh, war that leads to covetousness. There's desires that are leading to murder. There's asking that does not receive. There's lack of asking that does receive. Here, the church is just lost in this swirling, chaotic mess. And if you look at me at verse 6, James is going to summarize the real problem, the the heart of what's going on here. Verse six, God gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God opposes. This word for oppose, at other places could be translated resists. So you almost have this image in the push and pull that, that James is drawing on that's consistent across the Bible. And it's almost an image of two magnets. So God is this powerful, creative force of love and good, and he, as this magnetic field, is attempting to draw his creatures to himself. God wants to draw us with his love. He wants to draw us with his kindness. He wants to draw us with his grace. And yet, at the opposite end of the God magnetic pole is this pole of pride that just keeps drawing the creatures into themselves. Pride is going to be a self-elevation, this lifting up of ourselves. It's going to be seizing control for ourselves. And what James wants us to know is that every time we're pulled over to pride, there's actually this magnetic resistance to God. God is going to resist us, even as the nature of pride is us resisting God. Uh, C.S. Lewis has a really great chapter 
in mere Christianity on pride. It would be worth going back and reading it if this is resonating with you at all this morning. And yet, one of the great lines that Lewis sort of draws out that I want to give to you is him reflecting on the nature of this tension, this magnetic resistance between God and pride. He's going to say this, In God you come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. Unless you know God as that, and therefore know yourself as nothing in comparison, you do not know God at all. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. So so here's the nature of pride that James is drawing us into. Pride has set people in this church, this congregation up to a point where they are always looking down and they're actually being drawn away from God and God now is resisting them. Jesus uh, has a really great parable that he drops in the middle of his teaching that gives a really vivid illustration. This is from Luke 18. Just read it quickly for you. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One is a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to the house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Here's this this tension, this oppositional force of pride. And what Jesus is saying, what James is going to invite us into, that our only hope is to stop looking down on others, to cease with the humble brags, as the Pharisee does, of his immensity of religiosity and greatness, and instead allow ourselves to be humbled, allow ourselves to become small, And in our smallness, we finally can begin to look up to the God who is superior to us. But uh, James James doesn't leave us with humility. If you look with me at verses 7 to 10, he gives some very strong instructions. Submit yourselves to God, resist the devil, uh, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, purify your hearts, be wretched and mourn, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. He's saying the same thing Jesus says. Yet James, thankfully, I think for us, doesn't stop here. Because just like Benjamin Franklin, it's surprisingly hard, even when you attempt to pursue humility, to avoid pride. So James is going to give us three behaviors that he sees as the key behaviors that are going to pull us back into ourselves. And these are wily, but they're persistent. And James, by giving us their clarity is going to help us get clear ourselves and maybe where we are finding ourselves being pulled back into pride. So we're going to sit with these three. The first is going to come in verse 11. James suddenly turns to this church and gives a very precise illustration of how pride is working itself out in the community. He says, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, 
he who is able to save and to destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbors? In uh, the ancient world, there was a consistent hierarchy in any community that if you traveled to the city gates, you would encounter the elders, the wise men, occasionally wise women, who would be there to draw you into the center of the village and there would sit on a seat of judgment. So every community had a seat and you knew that if a judge or this wise elder was sitting on the seat, they were about to enact or make a judgment. And so what James is saying is you who judge, you who are looking critically at your neighbors, at your brothers and sisters, at those who are around you, you who judge are, are seizing the seat. You're, you're going to the, the seat of judgment and you're sitting upon it. You're actually sitting on this throne in which you can look out and decree your opinions on those who are around you. And as I, uh, as I was working on this sermon this week, I... Uh, somewhat confidently said to myself, oh, this isn't, this isn't going to be my struggle. Like, this, isn't, this behavior is not going to be the one I'm wrestling with. And then I started to notice, uh, even as I've been settling into the city, how often I judge everything. If you, if you really take a moment to pause and think about it, I mean, I walk into a coffee shop and I immediately go, hmm, is this going to be good coffee? Is this actually going to taste how I want it to? Is their decor stylish yet accessible enough for me to spend a moderate amount of time here? Or as I, as I walk on the street, I can't help but notice that as I casually pass by other urban dwellers walking various places, I can't help but wonder, hmm, I wonder, wonder where they're headed. They seem important. They seem like they're walking purposefully. Hmm, I, wonder, I wonder what their life has been like. They, they don't look like they're doing too well right now. I wonder what caused them to be there. I wonder, I wonder if there's someone I'd want to get to know. Or, you know, I wonder, I wonder why they're over here in this neighborhood. You know, what are, what are they doing over in my neck of the woods? Suddenly, it's like judgment just starts to swirl and push out of us. Uh, it's like this seat is there in your heart, and it's so tempting. Every opportunity, every encounter, every new scenario the seat just seems to be lingering empty, inviting you, calling you, pulling you back into a pride that sits you on the throne of judgment. James has such a, a simple but profound response in verse 12 to our attempts to occupy the seat of judgment. He says, there is only one lawgiver and judge. There is only one. And he is the only one who is able to save or to destroy. <laughs> Basically, James is looking at us and saying, do you really want to sit on that throne? Do you really want to be the one who's making pronouncements on every person, every place that you pass by? This is the pull, the power of judgment. And yet James isn't finished with judgment. He, he moves next to the pull of control. If you look with me at verse 13, he sort of changes scenarios. He's now speaking to a different group of people. James says, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. 
As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So James is, has turned now to this tradesperson, if you will. It was common in the ancient world that you would have a good that you were selling. Maybe you were a merchant. Maybe you were a craftsman. And you would sort of peddle your wares in a city for a certain time. You'd try to maximize profit, see if you could spread out to the however many people there were in that city who were interested in your trade. And then when it had sort of dried up, you would go on to the next town. So you would take your trades with you and hope that the next town would hold a massive profit. And so James is now speaking to the person who's looking ahead and isn't just trying to get by, but instead is sort of strategizing out how they're going to dominate the industry across the ancient world. They're going to maximize gains. They're going to spread out. And they're confident that if they just enact this glorious plan, they will seize full power across the whole range of their industry. It's pretty easy, I think, to feel the weight of this instruction from James on our own present day life. Not that all of us are entrepreneurs, but many here do have some sort of entrepreneurial call. It's easy to start to dwell in the future of control right? The future is actually far easier to control than the present, because in the future, our plans will work. Our plans will make sense. The plans will follow through. And yet here, James does seem to have a word for those of us who build immense portfolios that are unassailable by any market, those who would invest strategically across such a wide range of industries, that there's no way anything could topple. Those of us even who would get so confident in maybe that future degree or that future career or that future promotion that will finally enable us to maximize those gains, maybe even maximize the happiness that our life always owed to us. And uh, this, this passage, controversially, has uh, been read so stringently, so literally, that there are some denominations, traditions in the Christian faith that actually insist a Christian should make no plans whatsoever in the future. I don't think that's what James is getting at. Rather, I think verse 16 is the key. The the temptation of our future planning is in fact that temptation of control that pulls us back in to pride. It's the boasting in our own abilities, boasting in our own confidence starting to settle in with these plans into this sort of rigid grip that says this is necessary for my life to make sense and be meaningful. And what James warns us here is that much like judgment that has this tempting allure of a throne, control offers us the tempting fortifications of a fortress this ironclad future in which we are protected and unassailable from any negative outcome. And yet James here, just as uh, with judgment, is going to warn us when we attempt to build these fortresses of control, what we end up doing is isolating ourselves from God and isolating ourselves from other people. So you may just manage to maximize your gains, and yet you will be cut off from the very God and giver of life, who wants to sustain you. So here, just as with judgment, James warns us 
that the fortress does not offer us the security that we imagine. One final behavior pulls us into judgment. And it's going to come in chapter 5, verse 1. Now, this one is perhaps uh, the most strong, the most shocking. James turns his view to the rich. It's hard to know exactly what rich he's specifically going after here. Are, are they rich in the church? Are they rich outside of the church? Is there a specific group of wealthy landowners that James is about to attack? And yet his words are incredibly biting and yet hauntingly poetic, hauntingly beautiful. If you just slow down and read this with me. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted you, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasures in the last day. Okay, so, so James is himself almost building this image, this terrifying image that there are these rich who have been doing this controlling task of building up all of their silver and gold. And what James is kind of getting at is that this, this vision to build and to gather and to get more and more resources, more and more excess, more and more of everything is actually stacking this evidence for the last days that will be used against them. That the very riches themselves they thought they were accumulating for security and protection are now evidence in the final days. And James is going to keep going. Verse 4, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. I get chills every time. <laughs> I read that verse because what James is saying is that there have been these cries that have been coming in their ears and yet instead of listening to them, instead of uh, these cries sort of falling empty and deaf as these rich perhaps have thought they were, there has been one ear that has heard and it is the Lord of hosts. He says, you in verse five have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence you have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Here's the third behavior I think uh, that's helpful for us to consider as we wrestle with pride, and it's the behavior of indulgence. This sense in which what James is really going after here is not money per se, but is this temptation with money that we might indulge more and more and more until we get to this point where James says we are so fattened that we have of a feast. Uh, if you've ever had a chance to truly feast, just the courses are spread out, maybe Thanksgiving, a Christmas, an amazing meal, a shared tapas plate restaurant, you start to find inevitably that you just can't take it anymore. And yet the food is so good, you want to keep going. And this strange, bizarre sensation begins to occur for any of you like me who have overindulged in certain feasts. You start to grow numb to the food that you're eating. It's really strange. You think if you just keep going, if you just eat more and more and more, your taste buds will keep exploding with all of the excitement and the wonder of what this meal has provided. And instead, indulgence, as James warns us here, is 
It's fattening. It's actually numbing our senses. It's getting us more and more numbed out to the world around us. And so the, the struggle with pride, the, the pull that comes in indulgence, is that the more we begin to consume, the fatter and fatter we're going to get until we finally hit a point in our pride where we really can't feel that pull, that draw of God back to himself. It's the concern of indulgence. So these, these three behaviors, truly at this point in the passage, are, are a little bit overwhelming. I, I struggle here uh, with Ben Franklin to say, how can we ever overcome our pride? These three behaviors are so persistent, they're so present in each of our lives. And if each of these behaviors just consistently pulls us back to ourselves, pulls us away from God and towards this celebration, this elevation of who we are, what hope can we possibly have to escape the power of pride? There's one final verse in our passage. Uh, It's a little bit nuanced, a little bit theatrical, and yet I I think I'm tracking with what James is doing here. We've built to this sort of like terrifying pivot point where it's judgment and there's fire and there's fattening for a slaughter and it's really overwhelming and it's tempting to sort of say, oh, those rich who struggle with pride and yet James has a turn of phrase here in verse 6 of chapter 5. He's going to say, you have condemned and murdered. So what, what was the rich has now actually turned holistically to you, all of you. All of you are involved in this. All of you have participated. All of you are invoked. We have condemned and murdered, and James is going to use this very loaded phrase. We have condemned and murdered the righteous person. The righteous person. Uh, Clearly, there's a sense where we're kind of expecting, maybe James is about to accuse the rich for having murdered these righteous, innocent laborers, and yet James turns far more cosmic here. He says, you've condemned and murdered the righteous person. But here is the astonishing good news. He does not resist you. He does not resist you. That word resist is the same word used earlier in chapter four. God does oppose the proud. God is resisting the proud God is pushing back against the proud. And yet what I think James is is pointing towards here is the stunningly wondrous good news that in Jesus Christ, though all of us are proud, all of us now have a way to no longer be resisted by God. Here in the humility of Jesus, we find the only way to break the power of God of pride. If you, if you sit with Jesus's humbling, the humiliation of coming down from heaven, being born as an infant to a virgin, living simply as a carpenter's son in a back roads field in Galilee, this was a humble life, profound humility. And yet if that wasn't humbling enough, the death Jesus would suffer. It was the most humiliating type of death, 
stripping down and exposing a horrifying experience of violence and abuse. And yet Jesus endures it. And in his humility, in the willingness of God himself to come down to us and be humbled for us, truly the the mystery of the gospel is that this is the only power that could possibly break our pride. The only power. And so the invitation for us is to receive the gift of Jesus' humility, to receive it. There's nothing you can do to earn it because if you start to do it, you're going to return right back again to pride. Yet here, Jesus, who no longer resists us in his humility, is drawing us in. He's inviting us to draw near to God. So uh, to go back over these three behaviors, I think that the gospel of Jesus Christ has the power to break each of these behaviors in us if we sit first with judgment. The good news is that Jesus' humility frees us from being shackled to that throne. It's truly in Jesus' humbling, in the humiliation of Jesus, that we find one who took the judgment for us that we deserved and yet also now releases us and all from that judgment who would receive him. So now, rather than being drawn to the throne, we can be freed from the throne of judgment. And it's truly in Jesus' humbling that we now no longer have to judge others. With control, Jesus relieves and releases us from that fortress of control. In Jesus' humility, he shows us this life of freedom and dependency, a life of openness where he would look and say extraordinary things like, if the birds of the air are fed, and if the flowers of the field are clothed, then do you really need to worry about your future? You really need to rigidly isolate yourself in that fortress of control. It's the humility of Jesus that draws us out and invites us to live humbly with release and relief. Finally, to our indulgence. I think I'm most struck by this, that it's the humility of Jesus that sits at the feast and yet refuses to eat. I mean, to truly ponder Jesus's humility is to understand an invitation into sacrificial restraint. Jesus is the one who had power and yet refused to use it lordingly over others. Jesus is the one who had abundance spread before him and yet still chose to fast instead. If we can follow Jesus in the way of humility, we can begin to learn a life ourselves of sacrificial restraint. And as I, as I ponder all of the tension surrounding us in our culture, as I look around at our neighborhoods and see this desperate need for Christians to follow Christ in the city. I am profoundly moved that Jesus wants to show us this gift of sacrificial restraint for life in the city, a restraint that resists indulgence and yet is satisfied in God. So this morning, as I close, will you receive the gift of Christ's humility? Will you receive it? There's nothing you can do to earn it, There's nothing you can force about it because that is going to pull you right back into pride. Will you receive the power 
that is available to you in a humility that can break judgment, that can break that allure of control and can free us from indulgence. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.